walking through the book of Luke together. And last week we covered a passage that's probably one of the most popular passages in all the Bible. Judge not, lest you be judged, right? Everybody loves that passage because we love to throw it in people's face. But what we learned last week is that Jesus wasn't really saying that you should never judge. He's, he was saying, look, when you judge, you should judge, but when you judge, judge slowly, judge carefully. And at the end of the sermon, I said that a healthy church is a church that is filled with eye surgeons. Remember, he said, before you get the speck out of somebody else's eye, you need to get the log out of your own eye. So we should be a church that is filled with a bunch of eye surgeons, merciful disciple makers that are constantly speaking the truth and love to one another so that we, our eyes are open to see the light of the gospel. Now today, as we move further on in this in this book, we're going to see that not only does a healthy church have, it's filled with eye doctors, but it's also filled with heart doctors. Let's pray one more time, and then we're going to dig into this passage. Father, we know that our hearts desperately need to be transformed. And we also know that we are incapable of transformation apart from your spirit, and so we plead with you right now that your spirit would transform us from the inside out, that we would not leave here the same, that we would be more passionate about you and that you would open our eyes right now to see the glory in your word and we would see your grace and mercy and jealous love towards us and it would transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, starting in... Chapter 6, verse 43, verse 43, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a, a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Now, I want you to remember the context of this passage. Jesus is preaching a sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Plain. It, it mirrors the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And in this sermon, Jesus is really talking to his disciples and encouraging them, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be like these guys that love to be known and love to be popular. Instead, fill your hearts with, with mercy. Be humble. Be slow to judge. In fact, love your enemies even. And so he continues in that theme, don't be like the Pharisees. Their fruit is like poison, is what he's saying here in this passage. You see, this, this text also, in, in the context of it, you think back to last week and he's talking about get the log out of your own eye and so we ought not be quick to judge the Pharisees here. What he's trying to say is, look, before you judge somebody else by their fruit, you ought to look at your own fruit first. And so how do we do that? What does that look like? Remember, Scripture is like a mirror. There's really two questions you should always ask. When you, when you read a passage of Scripture, you should ask two questions. First of all, what does this passage teach me about God? 
Because the whole Bible is ultimately about God. It's his story from Genesis to Revelation. It's all about God. So you should ask that question. But the second question you should always ask is, what does this passage teach me about myself? And we get a picture here. We get a picture of two trees, right? And in these, this picture, you've got a, a, a tree that's got good fruit and a tree that's got bad fruit. And so what does fruit mean? What does he mean by fruit? In the Bible, the word fruit is used in several different ways. Uh, one way is to talk about our good works. And so if you go to Colossians 1.10, Paul says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And so it's the obedience to Christ. That's fruit in our life. Also, you see Galatians 5. Fruit is also attitude. It's the fruits of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. But what does he mean here? In the context of this passage, fruit isn't so much your attitude or your actions as much as it is the words you speak. He says, for out of the abundance of your heart, his mouth speaks. In fact, in the parallel passage to this, Matthew 12, verses 33 through 37, if you want to turn there, you can. You just go to the, your left a little bit. In Matthew 12... Starting in verse 33, either, uh, Jesus says this, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. And he's talking to the, the Pharisees here, directly to him now, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Ooh. For by the words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus doesn't beat around the bush, does he? And so this passage is talking about the fruit of our mouth. He's saying that, look, before you judge somebody else's heart by their fruit, you ought to pay attention to what's coming out of your mouth. Do you ever listen to what comes out of your mouth? Because what, what comes out of your mouth, it's not like social media that you can edit and kind of craft to make it sound better than you really are, right? When it, once it's out, it's out. You can't, you can't get it back. It's there. What comes out of your mouth? When, in your conversations, do you find yourself constantly thinking about how to veer the conversation back to yourself. I mean, when, when you're listening to somebody else's story, do, do you miss the second half of the story because you are reminded of a story that you want to tell? In your conversations, do you find yourself talking about people more than talking to people? Are your mouth, is your mouth filled with gossip or even slander? Is it filled with complaining or being negative constantly? Do you end up talking about the things that you wish you had or that next purchase that you really, really want? Do you tend to only talk about earthly things like your job or the weather or, or sports and your conversations never get to spiritual things? Do you find foul language slipping out of your mouth or, or off-color jokes or just sarcasm pouring out? What about your prayer life? When you talk to God, do your prayers... Are they filled with requests for your own wants, your own desires, your own needs? And listen, I'm not saying you should never 
pray for those things. I'm not saying you should never talk about, this, about sports, but I am saying what Jesus is talking about here is that we ought to watch what we're saying. We ought to monitor what comes out of our mouth because what comes out of your mouth reveals your heart. That's what this passage is about. I remember when I was in college, I was a new believer, freshman in college. We wanted my first mission trip, at least as a believer, my first mission trip I went on. I was down to Daytona Beach. Great place to go for a mission trip, I think. But <laughs> we go down to Daytona Beach, uh, freshman in college, and new believer, and we're standing around. It's a bunch of my friends from college, a bunch of dudes, and there was one female staff member that was there. And they start telling jokes, and everybody's just kind of sharing jokes. And so I figured, okay, I want to tell a joke. And I'm not a good joke teller to begin with, so I don't know what I was thinking. But I, I share this totally off-color joke. I mean, it, curse words throughout the whole thing. And this is this woman that's on staff, she's like the most godly woman I've probably ever met in my life. And, I'm, I'm, and all this stuff is just coming out of my mouth. And after the joke is done, like nobody laughs, of course. And my friends, they pull me aside and they're like, what are you thinking? And immediately my, my face turns red and, and I'm just totally embarrassed because I realize what I just did. And I wish, I'm like wishing, gosh, if I could just pull those words back and putting them and stuff them back in my mind. Have you ever felt that way before? You just want to stuff the words back in your mouth? It was one of those moments. And, and I said, I remember saying, gosh, that, what was I thinking? That's just, that wasn't me. Mm. But the reality is that was me. That was, that was the true me. I had gotten so comfortable with these guys that the filter had come off. And my heart actually came out, kind of leaked out in that moment. Because what comes out of your mouth reveals your true heart. Proverbs 4.23. I, I like the NIV version. Uh, it says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And in this passage, we use it often to talk about purity, but that word guard actually, it literally means to wa watch over, okay? So it, like keep track of your heart, look at your heart, investigate your heart, watch your heart because it's the wellspring of life. And so in the Bible, the heart is much more than an organ inside of you, it is it's, it's the core of who you are. It's your very being. It's your character. It's what you value most. In fact, Luke 12, 34, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so your heart is what you treasure most. It's what you value. It's what you worship. God made your hearts to treasure Him above everything else in the universe. Unfortunately, the fall has corrupted our hearts. Sin has, in, has totally corrupted our hearts. And because of that, we don't treasure Christ. We don't treasure God like we, we ought to. And, and the Bible has a lot of terms for this. Uh, idolatry is one of those when we put other things in front of God. Another term is spiritual adultery. It's, it's like we're cheating on God. John Calvin said that our hearts are factories of idols. And so the truth is we all have spiritual heart disease. All of us, are, our hearts are messed up. Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. And so think about this. It makes absolutely no sense for us to tell our kids, just follow your heart. Right? 
I mean, I don't want my kids to follow their heart. That's going to it's gonna lead them to hell, ultimately. I mean, your hearts are not a compass that leads you to happiness. They're a compass that just tells you what you most desire. John Bloom, an author, he writes this about your heart. He says, they don't tell us the truth. They just tell us what we want. They're kind of like the compass that Jack Sparrow carries around, you know, in the movie. It, just, it shows him what his heart wants the most. They are not benevolent. They are pathologically selfish. In fact, if we do what our hearts tell us to do, we will pervert and impoverish every desire, every beauty, every person, every wonder, and every joy. Our hearts want to consume these things for our own self-glory and self-indulgence. No, our hearts will not save us. We need to be saved from our hearts. Like I said, we, a healthy church is going to be a church that is filled not just with eye doctors, but heart doctors. We need to be able to properly diagnose what the core issue in our lives is, what, what the real reason that we sin. Now, unfortunately, sin blinds us often, and we don't see, we're really good at misdiagnosing the heart. You think about it. What do we do? I mean, never have I ever asked one of my sons, why did you hit your brother? And they say to me, because I have an evil heart that needs, that's full of sin and needs God. They never say that. Have your kids ever said that when you, when you confront them about something? No. What do they say? Well, he hit me first. Or he was just being really annoying. Or, or I just wanted to. Okay, those are the responses I typically, typically, typically get. Now, as adults, though, are we any better? Often, we, we blame shift just as much as our kids. Now, we get a little bit more sophisticated with it, right? But we do the same thing. We blame other people, okay? They, they disrespected me. They treated me like a child. That's what made me so angry. That goes back to Adam and Eve, right? I mean, think about it. When God confronted Adam about his sin, that he disobeyed the one rule that God had given him, what was Adam's response? It's the woman you gave me. She made me do it. And then Eve did the same thing. It was that serpent. We blame shift all the time. We blame other people. We blame our past. I mean, if you only knew the dysfunctional family that I grew up in. Now, if you use that logic, pretty much all of us could say that, at some level at least. Because who, sinned, or who, who raised us? A bunch of sinners, right? So we blame our past. We, we, often we just blame it on a bad day. I'm just, I'm just having a bad day, right? I mean, work was impossible. Traffic was insane. The kids are driving me nuts. We blame it on our circumstances. Or, or, or we blame it on our bodies. I'm just, I'm tired. I just don't feel good today. I've got this huge headache. We are great at blame shifting. And when we do that, we diagnose our sin wrongly. Listen, I don't want to minimize our circumstances. I mean, those, those things that I talked about, people and, and our past and our, our current circumstances, those are all influences in our life. The, the Bible doesn't minimize those things at all. In fact, Jesus Christ came and paid the ultimate sacrifice so that we could be saved and he, would, and he promises to come, day, come back one day and he says, I'm going to eliminate all of that suffering. And so the Bible doesn't minimize suffering. I, I don't want to minimize your suffering. 
But nevertheless, we must make the distinction between the occasion of our sin, which is the circumstances, and the actual cause of our sin, which is in our heart. Our circumstances influence us, but they are not the the ultimate cause of our sin. We need to get the diagnosis correct so that we know how to treat it correctly. If your primary problem is actually your circumstances, then all you need to do is just change your circumstance. Get a new job. Get out of that relationship. Go to a different church. But if that's not the actual cause, then it's, it's not going to help. But what happens? Let's say you, you change your circumstance. You get a new job, but you know what? You get a new job and the same thing starts happening. You still find yourself angry and frustrated and even though the, the circumstances have changed, it's actually gotten worse. Sometimes that happens, right? But what happens if it does get better, though? Let's say you change the circumstances and, and life gets a little bit easier for you and you feel a little bit better. If that's the situation, if you focused on changing your circumstances, who gets the glory? Is it you or is it Christ? Because if the main problem was just simply your circumstances, there's no need for Christ, don't get me wrong, sometimes the circumstances need to change. I mean, if you're, if you're in an abusive situation, you need to get out of that situation. Don't get me wrong, Cir- circumstances need to be changed at times, but there is, always, there is always something deeper going on. There's a deeper issue that you need to deal with. The Bible makes it very clear that our deepest problem is not psychological. It's not low self-esteem or unmet needs. Our main problem is not social, it's not bad relationships or or bad influences. Our main problem is not historical. It's not your dysfunctional family. Our main problem is not physiological. It's not your body. All those are influences, but the source, the root of the real problem, it's spiritual. It's that your heart was designed to treasure Christ, and you have replaced Christ with something else. You see, our real problem is a worship disorder. And so what do we do with this? How does this play out in everyday life? Okay, I want you to think back. What was the last like, serious conflict that you had with somebody? Okay, think about that argument that you had and, and how you responded to them and how they responded to you. Think about just an, an everyday conflict. Maybe it was with your, your spouse or your kids or your boss or your coworker, your neighbor, your family member. <coughs> Excuse me. But think about that conflict. And I want you to turn to James chapter 4. <coughs> Excuse me. In James chapter 4, what we're going to see is, is really where, where does that anger come from? And we also see the solution to that anger. And so using the example of an everyday conflict, think, keep that in mind as we read James 4. And we're going to go all the way through verse 10. I'm just going to start with the first four verses, though. James says, what causes... There's that word, cause. Now, what influences, what causes quarrels, and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, and so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have, though, because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Then he says this, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself 
an enemy of God. James pulls no punches. James allows for no blame shifting here. He says, look, your angry words, your, those words that come out of your mouth, those quarrels, those fights, they're like thorns. They're like bad fruit. But where do they come from? What's the ultimate cause? It's not your circumstances. Circumstances. It's the, the passions that are at war within you. In other words, it's your own heart. Those thorns that come out of your heart are a window into your heart. And so next time you're in a conflict and you're angry, With that person, ask yourself the question, okay, is there something in my heart that I've made too much of? Is there there a desire in my own heart that I've made too strong? Is there an idol that I have? For me, often when I get in a conflict with with my wife, it's respect. Respect is that idol that, that I have in my own heart that when I feel that I'm being disrespected, that's when the thorns start coming out and the, the, the negativity and the, the sarcasm starts coming out. And it took me forever to, to kind of figure this out. And, and Cam would tell me that, look, we're in the middle of an argument and she would say things like or ask things like, why do you talk to me that way? You would never talk to your friends that way. And it took me forever to realize that Okay, the, the reason that I can be so harsh with the people that I love most is because the filter is gone and I feel so comfortable. It, it, it's not that I love her less, it's a, that I'm actually so comfortable around her that my heart is exposed in those moments. You see, we, we often have a pretty tight filter and, and we guard our mouth pretty well about around people that we don't know or people that we looked look up to. But it's the people that we love, the people that we're most comfortable around that we end up hurting the most because the filter comes off. That's actually a really good illustration. We talk about that. We joke about people that don't have a filter, right? But what does a filter do? It, it, it takes out the impurities, which implies that there's something impure in us, right? The people we love get hurt the most because our mouth is a window into our heart. James 4, uh, verse 4, he goes a little bit further though, doesn't he? He says that the people engaging in ungodly conflict, it's not just an issue they have with that person, it's also an issue that they have with God. They've already begun to worship someone or something other than God. He says that they've committed spiritual adultery. Isn't that interesting? That when you have an argument with somebody else, the the core issue is not that other person. It's that you have started worshiping somebody else other than God in that moment. Your desire for respect has become a a functional savior. And this is what's happening in my heart when when, when I get angry because I don't feel like I'm being respected. It's that I've put respect on such a high pedestal that I say, okay, if I don't have respect, then I don't have happiness. I have to have respect for me to feel good about myself. It's become a functional savior. I've worshipped that idea of other people respecting me. And so it's actually, a, it's not their issue. That, they are not the cause of my anger. It's my own heart's worshipping the wrong thing. That's, that the, that's the real issue. We've got to diagnose the problem correctly. Because when we start diagnosing the problem, when we understand that the root is actually the root cause of our sin is, is 
our own hearts, it will have a profound impact on your life because it opens up the door for you to be able to apply the gospel. Look at James chapter 4 again, verse 5. He says this. I love this verse. This verse has captured my heart all week. Or do you suppose it is, not, it is of no purpose that the scriptures say, he, talking about God, he, God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. The, the, the words are so powerful there. Now, when we think of jealousy, usually in our lives, jealousy is a bad thing. But with God, that's who God is. That, that is a good thing for God to be jealous for you. Another word for jealous here could be zealous. That God is zealous for you. He longs for your affections. He wants your love. And he will go to any length to get it. I mean, think about how jealous he is, how much he loves you. He went to the cross for you. He paid the penalty for your sin. He was tortured for your heart because he wants to reclaim your heart. He was tortured for you for that. He gave up heaven for you, for your heart to to love him. And it's not that you deserved it. I mean, you are his enemy. You had committed spiritual adultery. You've cheated on God, and yet he continues to pursue you. No person in their right mind does that. Even though you cheated on him, he keeps coming for you with a passionate, zealous love. And then he He doesn't just die for you. He gives you gifts. He gives you himself. He says, look, I I just didn't die for you right now. I want you to spend eternity with me so you can enjoy me for all of eternity, forever and ever. And he sends sends you his spirit to live inside of you. He adopts you into his family. I mean, he pours out gifts on you even though you don't deserve it. And he does this freely. It's not like he was manipulated into doing this. It's not like he was forced to the cross. He said, for the joy set before me, I endured the cross. He couldn't wait to get to the cross because he loves you that much and he wants you to love him. He wants your heart and he sends his spirit so that he would reclaim your heart. Ephesians 5, Paul says that Christ looks at the church like his bride. I remember as I was standing at the altar, waiting for, this is almost 20 years ago, I still remember it was like yesterday, but I hadn't seen Cameron all day, this is our wedding day, and I hadn't seen her all day, we're very traditional in that way, and I remember just the anticipation of waiting for her, to see her for that first time that day, that she was going to be Mrs. Young, and I remember as I saw her, my thumbs went numb, it was the weirdest sensation. I don't know. I mean, it's never happened before that. It's never happened after that. I'm glad it wasn't my legs that went numb because that's how you end up on Funniest Home Videos. But my thumbs went numb because I was anticipating that moment. And listen, God anticipates the day that you trust in Him infinity times more than that moment that I had anticipating my wife. And if 
If you're his bride, he will not let you wander forever. He will draw you back. And he may, he may get, have to get your attention. He may throw some trials at you. But understand, those trials that God sends in front of you, they are, they are not punishment. They are his love towards you. Jesus took all the punishment on the cross. If you've trusted in him, he took all the punishment that you deserved. And so the trials you are going through, they are his loving pursuit of you as a heavenly father. He is disciplining you so that you turn back to him. He loves you more than you could ever realize. It's incomprehensible how much he, he yearns for you, that he is jealous for the spirit that he has put in you. He is your he looks at you as his bride. James chapter 4, verse 6, he says this, but he gives, a, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. A prideful person says, I don't need God, but he gives grace to the humble. See, it's the mercy of God that leads us to that humility, it's the mercy of God that leads us to repentance. In verses 5 and 6, God is pursuing us. But here, look at verses 7 through 10 now. He invites us to pursue Him. Verse 7, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter turn to mourning and your joy to gloom. What's he doing there? He's just describing true repentance. He's describing somebody that has recognized, I've cheated on God. I've cheated on this one who loves me this passionately, and I'm, I want him back. And so you cry out, mourning, repenting of your sins, recognizing that your sins hung Jesus on the cross. And in verse 10, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And so first we need to diagnose what the ultimate cause of our sin is. It's not our circumstances, it's our own heart. And once we diagnose it correctly, then we need to turn back to Christ. We need to repent of our sins. Have you ever thought about the tension that you have in relationships is actually a gift from God because it reveals your heart. It reveals those idols in your heart so that you can go back to Him in repentance and faith. It exposes our heart and that's what changes. That repentance is what changes our hearts. It turns thorns into fruit. Uh, Eli, Eli, go ahead and show the picture. And so this is coming from a book, great book, How People Change. It's by Paul Tripp and I think um, uh, Lane, I think is his name. But this is essentially what's happened in this passage, right? We've got two trees and the, the sun or the heat, which is our situation, our context, influences us. But the ultimate cause for our good fruit and our bad fruit is not the sun, it's not the heat, it's our heart, it's the root, and at the middle, you see the cross, because it's the, it's the cross that ultimately transforms our heart. You see, nothing could be more hopeful than the picture that we see 
in this passage. Nothing is more freeing than this because what this means is that your life is not determined by your circumstances. Your life is not determined by what's happened in your past. Your life is not determined by what's going on right now in your circumstances. Your life ultimately is determined by your heart. And God has provided and He has addressed your deepest issues. Because God is in the business of transforming hearts. That's why he's so passionate about you. That's why he he yearns for your spirit that he's placed inside of you so he could transform your heart. And so you can be confident that absolute change is possible in you. No matter what you're dealing with, no matter what addiction you're dealing with, no matter what idol is in your heart, no matter how often you've been angry in the past, God wants to change your heart and he pursues you passionately to recapture it so that you would worship him other than other things. Proverbs 4.23 again, above all else, guard your heart, watch over your heart for it is the wellspring of life. Go back to that picture, Eli, if you can. Draw that picture for your kids. Don't just be a parent that seeks to modify behavior. Shepherd your child's heart. Teach them that they they have sin in their heart that needs to be dealt with, that they have idols that they need to deal with, that they've worshipped other things than God. Don't just focus on circumstances. Focus on the heart. This is why church is so important. You've heard the, the phrase that it takes an army to raise a child. Well, it takes a church to raise a Christian. It's in the context of church family that we experience heart doctors that help us to diagnose the idols in our hearts. It's in the context of the messiness of church where relationships don't always go smoothly that our hearts are exposed. Often, we, we shy away from relationships because we don't want to feel the pain. But Jesus is saying that, look, those relationships and the pain that you feel because of those relationships are what exposes your heart so you can see the idols so that you can repent and change. We're going to close with a Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, Paul says, but you are fellow citizens within, with the saints and the, the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, Paul leaves absolutely no room for you to try to be a Christian on your own. He says, if if you're going to turn towards God, if you're going to experience the loving relationship that God has designed you for, it's going to happen in the context of a church family. So don't neglect your church family. Pursue those relationships, because it's within those relationships, it's within that context that God's going to transform your heart. Let's pray that God would help us do that. Father, you have given us...
such a powerful picture. And I pray that we would take it to heart. I pray that we would be freed from the idols that bind us. I pray that we would pursue you with everything that we've got and that we would speak the truth and love to one another, that we would be heart surgeons and eye surgeons, that we would be slow to judge and that we would be merciful towards one another, but that we would love one another enough to help each other see the idols in our hearts so that we would be drawn to you, that we would repent of our sins and we would, we would know you at, a, at such a, a whole new level, that we would know your love. You are jealous for us. We praise you for that. Help us to soak that in today. In Jesus' name, amen.